You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Good morning, everybody. I'm delighted to be with you in worship this morning as we uh, worship Christ corporately this morning, and especially now as we hear God in His Word. So in order to hear God and His Word, um, would you please open your Bibles, turn with me in your Bible, to Luke's Gospel. Turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. Luke 16, verses 14 through 18. This is the text that the Lord in His providence has given us to focus on this morning as we make our way verse by verse through the book of Luke. And so this is the text that God has decided Himself as we just move through it that we should have today. And what a wonderful thing to think, that he decides which passage we get each week as we make our way through this. Now, before we read, before we seek to understand, and before we apply the doctrine or the teaching that's found in this text, I want to first recite our corporate memory verse for this month, which is what we're memorizing as a church body during the month of October, and it's 1 John 5.20. So let's just simply today recite our corporate memory verse out loud together, and then we'll look at our text in Luke. You ready? Let's say it out loud together. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. What an astonishing verse. And I encourage you this month to spend some time in this memory verse. We memorize a verse each month together as a church body. And I encourage you to pray through it. Pray through the memory verses each month. Study their syntax. You know what syntax means? It means the relation of words to each other. To understand the meaning of this text. You know what you should do? Go to coffee and discuss the meaning of this verse with a friend. Sit down with a friend and consider the truth of this verse. Consider the implications, the applications. Bear in mind what the meaning of the book of 1 John is, which is to show evidences of a true believer. And then how does this verse fit within that? And spend some time with this, this verse this month. I know that it's going to enlighten you with the knowledge of the truth, God will make clear its meaning as you study it and give you understanding of great biblical doctrines like salvation. This passage speaks about salvation. And it will not only give you knowledge, but it will change your life if you, if you uh, spend time in God's words, particularly this verse, just like all verses. So, very well. Let's now turn our attention to the text that God has selected for us today. And Luke's gospel, and it's again a wonderful thing that I don't get to select which text we're in each week. We just move through Luke, and we do what we can with it in the time that we can, and then as we continue to move forward, God selects the passage as we just take as long as we need on each section to explain its meaning and then move on, right? And so this is the verse, uh, the section that God has us in. And let's start, as we always do, by reading this text. You ready? Luke 16, verses 14 through 18. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. 
For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. These are Jesus' words. These are not my own. And these are in the Word of God as we just move verse by verse through His gospel, through Luke's gospel. So, what are we seeing here? What we're seeing here is Jesus explicitly exposing the error of the Pharisees. That's the point of, of the passage. That's why I've entitled the, passage, the, the message, Jesus Explicitly Exposes the Error of the Pharisees. The title of the message is always the main point of the section, right? And what Jesus is doing here, listen now, is Jesus is making clear the hearts of these false teachers. Jesus is exposing their motives. Jesus is explaining and exposing how God really sees these Pharisees. He's speaking of their spiritual blindness. Jesus is speaking of their subtle and their self-serving manipulation of the Scriptures. Jesus is speaking about their lack of understanding and their twisting of the Scriptures to fit their own desires. And Jesus has been teaching on some things Prior to this section, he's been teaching on salvation, and he's been teaching on money. And though Jesus' words are true, though Jesus' words are honoring to God, though his words are faithful to God's law, the, the blind religious leaders, instead of accepting Jesus' teaching, they scoff at Jesus' teaching. They reject his message. That's what's happening in this section. And the reason why they scoff at his message is because it offends their pride. It threatens their sin. It's opposed to their own wisdom. It it threatens their self-righteousness. They're ignorant of the truth, and yet they think that they're experts of God's truth. That's what we know about the Pharisees. And Jesus responds to them in this section, verses 14 through 18, chapter 16, with an explicit attack upon the Pharisees. He explains plainly. He explains truthfully. He explains authoritatively the error of the Pharisees. He's replying to the Pharisees' scoffing. He teaches. The Pharisees respond. And then Jesus responds to their response. He's explicitly exposing their sin and their error. That's the main point of this section. And that's all this section is about. So today you came on a day where Jesus is doing nothing other than exposing the sin of the Pharisees. That's it. That's what he's doing in these verses. He replies to the Pharisees' scoffing. You see, these religious leaders, they failed to see their sinful condition. They failed to see that they were sinful. They failed to repent of their sin. They failed to enter into the kingdom of God. But what's true about the Pharisees, and that makes this passage all the more real and clear, is that the Pharisees appeared to be extremely devoted to God. The Pharisees appeared to be people who observed and believed in the law of God. The Pharisees were observed by many, and they were believed by many to be men who were favored and approved in the sight of God. The Pharisees appeared to to many to be those who were actually the most favored and the most approved by God. But in fact, they were, as we'll see in this text, an abomination to him. 
They were extremely religious, and to many who watched them, they thought, surely these men are favored by God. And so they were ones who professed to know God. They were very outwardly religious, and yet their hearts were full of greed and hypocrisy. They were the ones who outwardly appeared to be religious and honorable and virtuous to God, and yet... And, and, and listen, even in their own minds. You see, one thing you know about false teachers is they've convinced themselves too. So even in their own minds, they're genuinely convinced that they are favored by God, but they are ignorant of the truth, meaning they don't know it. They're not basing their thoughts on the Scriptures. They walk convincingly, it's in their own ideas, their own wisdom, in their own religion, and others follow their teaching. You see, the Pharisees didn't interpret the Scriptures faithfully. They didn't even see that they interpreted the Scriptures, listen, they interpreted the Scriptures through the lens of their own desires. Meaning that's how they understood the Scriptures. To accomplish their self-exalting, self-protecting, self-centered goals. And yet, listen, it was masked as a love for God and as a love for people. So the Pharisees, they were driven by maintaining their platform, their positions. They were actors publicly. They were proud. They even convinced themselves. And many thought, surely these religious leaders, surely these teachers are favored by God but they taught half-truths. They didn't explain the Scriptures rightly, and they were motivated inside by greed, by wealth, and many other things. The praise of man. And the Pharisees, listen, they would not risk losing their wealth by doing what was right in the sight of God. They wouldn't risk it. It would be too risky to do what's right. So by their false teachings, listen, it goes on from them to others. Because by their false teachings, many of those who listened to them, they, were cons- they, they considered themselves right by God, right in front of God, right to God, right with God. Because they didn't know the Scriptures themselves either because they heard the Pharisees' teachings, not the Scriptures themselves. Or the Scriptures were twisted. So they thought... The the people who watched the Pharisees and the Pharisees themselves, you ready? They thought their position, their wealth, their great big following were all clear signs of God's favor on their lives. They said, the fruit displays that God's favor is on us. Can I tell you, that's what all false teachers say. Look at the fruit. Well, you can do a lot of fleshly things and accumulate a lot of people. That doesn't equate to the fruit of God. They thought that their positions and their wealth and the following were clear signs of God's favor when it really had nothing to do with that. God gave them over to their earthly rewards, and they were just deceiving themselves. They were actually abominations in God's sight, as we're going to see here. And then anyone who opposed them, Anyone who were out, was outside of, the clear bless, uh, of, of their clear blessing of Israel was actually an abomination to them. But you want to know the, the Pharisees' greatest error is that they rejected Jesus as the Christ. And they might, some of them, have not even uh, outwardly denied that. But they rejected that Jesus was the Christ in that they, t- they rejected his teaching as authoritative. They rejected God's salvation for repentant sinners in Christ. So God has a lot to say, listen, about these religious who claim to follow God, who claim to worship God, who claim to love God and be loved by God, and yet are full of half-truth. They're full of... of Hypocrisy, full of pride, they don't see their depravity, and they don't turn to Christ for, for transformation. This is a great abomination to him. Let's just look at some verses. Isaiah 1 says this. 
He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required you this trampling of my courts? He says this, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations I cannot endure. Iniquity and solemn assembly, your new moons and your appointed feasts, this is what the Lord says, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my face from you. And even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourself. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Isaiah 29 says, and the Lord says, because this people draw near to me with their, what? Mouths. And they honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. This was the characteristic of the Pharisees. Isaiah 48 says, hear this, O house of Jacob who are called by my name of Israel, who came from the waters of Judah, who look, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in what? Not in truth or right. Romans 10 says this, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They're seeking to actually establish their own righteousness, and therefore they don't submit to God's righteousness. 2 Timothy 3 says they're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. They're hearing God's law all the time, but they've never come to an actual truth that the Scripture says. Proverbs 11 says this, those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 28 says if one turns his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And worst of all, they rejected God's Christ. And 1 Corinthians 16 says, anyone who has no love for the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. John Piper writes this. He says, the Pharisees, they, they showed, these false teachers showed partiality in their teaching. The God says, you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in their instruction. Now, what does that mean? It means that they are doing the very same thing that the word of, with the word of God that they did with their sacrifices. Do you remember what that was? Listen, they gave just those animals to God that would give maximum money to their pockets. So these false teachers would give broken-legged sheep, blind sheep, mangy sheep, and you can't sell these sheep, so you give them to God and you keep your pockets full. Well, that's exactly what they were doing with the teaching of the Word of God. They were precisely teaching their congregations that which would keep their pockets full, to play to their audience, right? It says, when the glory of God no longer satisfies the heart of the preacher, he can do two things, either leave the ministry or stay and preach for money. And this is what the Pharisees are doing. And so in our passage today, this is all that Jesus is exposing. He's confronting and exposing their error, their sin of these false teachers, these religious on the outside, but unclean on the inside, religious leaders and teachers. And he makes it clear. These are the words of our Lord. So I'm going to show you the divisions of this text in a second, but let me remind you. Jesus just got finished teaching on salvation. He just got te finished teaching on money. And he, after he's done teaching on money, these Pharisees respond by mocking Jesus' teaching. They're continuing to reject his authoritative teaching as the divine son of God, right? Now, one thing has changed at this point in Luke's gospel. One thing has changed. Their attacks are becoming more direct and more explicit. And Jesus' response is becoming also more explicit, as you'll see in this section. We are only, things are escalating, and it makes sense, because we're only a couple months away from the cross here. And, and so things are going to escalate until they do what to Jesus? Crucify him. So things are escalating. Their attacks are becoming more explicit. Jesus' attacks are becoming more direct. And this is an indictment on the religious leaders. And it's 
straightforward. It's straightforward. And what we see is Jesus is exposing their sin. They're becoming more frustrated. They're becoming more emboldened. They're becoming more hostile. And Christ is exposing why they are frustrated with his teaching. So what do we see here in these verses? Well, we're going to see eight points. You ready? Number one, we'll see Jesus expose that they were the Pharisees were lovers of money. Number two, that they were opposed to the truth. Number three, that they justified themselves before men. Number four, that they were deceived and that they had deceptive hearts. Number five, that their religious acts were an abomination before God. Number six, that they rejected the true gospel. Number seven, that they were blind to the guidance and the promise of the law. And number eight, that they twist the law of God to facilitate their own desires. That's exactly what's being said in this passage, right? So Jesus, he teaches them on money. The Pharisees are offended because they're lovers of money. Jesus' teaching threatens their sin. And this passage sits between two additional teachings on money. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, which we looked at last week, deals with the believers using their resources for the salvation of souls. Next week, in verses 19 through 31, Jesus will deal with the short-sightedness of living for money and failing to serve God first. So, the beginning of 16, Jesus was teaching on using Christians using their resources for the salvation of souls. At the end of chapter 16, Jesus will show the short-sightedness of living for money rather than for God. And right here in the middle, as the Pharisees respond to Jesus' teaching on money, Jesus now indicts the Pharisees for their response. So, to make these points clear, which are pretty straightforward, let's take them what? One at a time. You ready? Number one. What we see first is that the Pharisees were lovers of money. Read verse 14a. The Pharisees who were <laughs> lovers of money. That's pretty clear, huh? Okay, so Luke tells us a truth about the Pharisees here. They were lovers of money. This is the true and keen insight into who the Pharisees were. And this comes from the truth of Scripture. Think about this for a second. Under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke introduces this section by giving us a truth about the Pharisees. This is a divine inspiration. This is not an opinion. This is not to say, well, you have a cruel opinion about the Pharisees. This is under divine inspiration by the Holy Spirit. Luke writes this, and it's God's truth about them. And you know what God's truth is about the Pharisees? They were bound to monetary gain. They were lovers of money. Do you understand? That's what we're first seeing here. And the Greek word that's used here. Is it derives from two Greek words, phileo, which means what? Anybody know what the root phileo means? To love. It means to love, right? And then the second word meant silver. And so they were literally what? Lovers of silver. That's what this means. They were silver lovers. That's what, that's what Luke is making clear here. So listen, which by the way, that's what was offered to Judas to betray Jesus, and that's what Judas accepted in order to betray Jesus, right? So instead of using money, as Jesus just taught, follow with me now, to accomplish the souls, the salvation of souls, as we see Jesus' desires for all men, this is the new way. This is the way you use money if you're a follower of him. The Pharisees instead were lovers of money for themselves. 2 Timothy 3 says this, For in the last days people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. And this is an attribute of a false teacher. Listen, they are motivated by sordid what? Gain. Micah 3 says this about false teachers. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead many people astray. 
They cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Isaiah 56 says, the dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Second Peter 2 says this, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false what? So false teachers, what they will do is sh share half-truths, teach the scriptures in a, in a way that satisfies their hearers, but they're motivated by their what? By their greed, right? It changes the way they teach. Now, I don't want you to think that this was blatant, because that's, that's part of this indictment here. The false teachers wouldn't admit to this. They're not gonna, they don't walk up and say, hey, nice to meet you. I'm a false teacher who is motivated by money. Right? That's not, their, that's not what they would say outwardly. Right? Which is why they're effective. But the Pharisees, they were covetous. And they disguised it. Leon Morris says this. They saw their money as evidence of the blessing of God on their activities and thus of their righteousness. They saw the fact that they pulled in a lot of money as evidence of God's favor. Yet, 1 Timothy 6 says this. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many pangs. That's pretty clear. So the Pharisees outwardly portrayed a heart for the law of God, yet they were motivated by sordid gain, which we know that godly leaders should not be. They loved their positions of wealth and comfort and they didn't want to lose either and therefore they rejected even the truth of God if it threatened what they loved. So, leads us to number two. They were opposed to the truth. They were not only motivated by sordid gain, they're not only lovers of money, but number two, they were opposed to the truth. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things. What things? The things that Jesus just taught on money, right? That you should use your money for the salvation of souls. That your money actually displays uh, whether or not you're, you have faith in God, the way you use it, and, and that you, shouldn't, you can't serve God in money. They heard all these things, right? And they ridiculed him. So they opposed the truth of Jesus' teaching. Listen now, Jesus just taught about money. He taught about the use of money, right? We just read that. We just, we just understood that. He said that you should use your money for the salvation of souls, and it also gives proof to whether or not someone is truly born again, the way that they use their money. He says, Jesus just got, taught, te got finished teaching in chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, that you can't serve both God and what? Money. The master of your life can only be God or something else. And one will inevitably be faced with a choice. There will come an instance where you will have to choose to serve Christ, and if you do, it will mean you have to lose monetary gain or to gain money, and you will forego faithfulness to Christ. It will happen. You, can only, you will have to choose who your ultimate master is. You can't serve both, and the choice will reveal who your master is. There is always devotion and loyalty to one over the other. Only one can be first as a master. And so in response to Jesus' teaching about all this, all that he just said about money, because the Pharisees were lovers of money, this is what Luke is explaining to us, they did what? They ridiculed him. They ridiculed his teaching. They opposed the truth. He teaches on money because they're lovers of money. They don't accept his teaching. Instead, they ridicule him for his teaching. It's pretty clear, right? If the truth of God's word threatens your sin, and your response then is not to humbly receive his word as truth, repent from your sin, turn to him, but instead oppose it because it threatens what you love most. This is exactly what's happening here. The previous parable was for the benefit of the disciples, but the Pharisees were standing around and they were listening. And they were severely offended by Jesus' teaching on money. They were offended. So instead of feeling convicted, instead of saying Jesus is the divine son of God, and his teaching is authoritative. Instead of repenting, that would be what God would rejoice in. Instead of doing that, 
they respond by ridiculing and mocking Jesus' teaching. R.C. Sproul says this, Can you imagine sneering at Jesus? It would seem that behavior could sink no lower than to hold the Son of God in contempt. Yet this is the almost universal reaction of the world to Jesus. All those who are outside the kingdom of God, though they make empty compliments of Jesus, calling him a great teacher, a prophet, nevertheless indicate by their response to his word that in the deepest chambers of their hearts, they hold him in contempt. And this is the case of the Pharisees. They were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. They didn't want to hear Jesus' teachings. And it displayed that they were false worshipers. They had no desire or ability to listen to the truth. 1 Corinthians 2 says this, then the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they're folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are, what? Spiritually discerned. Even those who call Jesus Lord display their spiritual state with how they respond to the word of God. It's the evidence of the spiritual state of someone. Luke 6 says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? And so the Pharisees, they scoff at Jesus' teaching. And you know what the Greek word, the Greek term here means? It means to turn your nose up in, in contempt. Like, I know better than his teaching. Because they were, their sin was threatened. They wanted to keep their sin. And Jesus' teaching threatened their sin. They, uh, they wanted to keep serving God outwardly and also serve money at the same time. And Jesus was telling them they can't do that. Right? Because they were lovers of money and it threatened them, they didn't respond to the truth in submission, they ridiculed it. And it's this sin of the rejection of God's truth that kept them out of the kingdom. John 7 says this. Jesus explains why people hate him. John 7, Jesus says, The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are what? That's why the world hates him. It's pretty clear. But Jesus is calling people to repentance and salvation through his teaching. Only the ones who reject this teaching will be exposed for, for their, their sin. Which leads Jesus' response in the rest of the section. The rest of this section, just like in chapter 15, ready? Jesus gives an invitation to salvation. The Pharisees are upset that sinners are responding. All of chapter 15, Jesus responds to the Pharisees about salvation. Well, so here, Jesus teaches on money, the Pharisees scoff at his teaching, and then this, these verses here is Jesus' response to their scoffing. So Jesus continues here. This is an indictment in his response, and uh, Jesus just continues with more direct exposure of their blindness. Number three, what we see is that they justify themselves before men. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, we already covered that, heard all these things, we covered that, and ridiculed him, verse 15, and he said to them, these are Jesus' words now, you are those who, what? Justify yourselves before men. That's pretty clear, right? So they were lovers of money, they opposed the truth, and they justified themselves before men. Now I think that this is, there's a bigger picture here. They justified themselves for salvation. But I think Jesus is also referring here to the direct relation to them in their serving of money. Do you understand? They're justifying themselves before men in order to continue to serve their greed. Basically, they're explaining why they're serving money, and they're kind of framing it in religious ways so that people would not only uh, accept it, but they would also encourage it. Yes, let's keep getting more, you know? So what Luke just told us is that their, their reason for their scoffing is that they love money and now they're justifying the, themselves before men in their love for and in their service of money. You understand? Meaning they're explaining religious reasonings for serving money. They're making it sound good. They're saying it's the fruit of God's favor. 
There's using it for the purpose of God. They're the servants of God. Do you know the Pharisees were the first health, wealth, and prosperity preachers? Right? This is, there's nothing new under the sun. They would explain themselves before men to beget other people to believe their motives so that they can continue to serve their motives so that others wouldn't condemn what they're doing, but that they would encourage it. The goal was to convince men. Now listen, listen close, closely to this. Men gave them what they wanted. Men could hinder what they wanted. So if they could convince men, they would be content. But you know what then is obvious? It's obvious that their concern wasn't to be right in the sight of God. They didn't realize that God was watching. They didn't realize that God's opinion is what matters. Their goal then wasn't to be justified before God. That's a scary thought, that you could spend your whole life just wanting to make sure everybody around you thinks that you are right before God instead of actually becoming right before God. And they had no acknowledgement, no realization that God can't be tricked like man can be. Yet they didn't care because their chief concern was winning in this life, not winning in the next. How short-sighted. Wouldn't it make sense to make sure we win in the next even if it means losing in this life? It would make a lot of sense. That's why people turn to Jesus and give up their life to trust in Jesus and have forgiveness of sins because they know that in comparison to eternity, this life doesn't mean much of anything. Why gain the whole world and yet forfeit your what? Soul. So people admired them. They were exalted by men. And this is what blinded them to true salvation. They sought the pleasures of this life to be exalted by man rather than being right before God. John 5 says this, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You're not going to believe if all your goal is is to please man. But if your goal is to please God, then you're going to live for him. Galatians 6 says this, There are those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. They loved the admiration of people. They did all their deeds to be noticed by men. They loved hosting these banquets with all the wealthy and rich people. They would just invite the top uh, wealthy people, all the rich people. They would have these banquets with all the, the greatest, uh, the wealthiest people. They loved a place of honor at these banquets. Matthew 23 says this, they do all their deeds to be seen by others and they love the place of honor at feasts and greetings in the marketplaces. They justified themselves before men and they masked and justified their love for money and they portrayed that they were right with God and they were not. In fact, what we see next is they had deceived and deceptive hearts. They had deceived and deceptive hearts. Verse 15 says this, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your what? Hearts. So meaning this, they had deceived hearts, they convinced themselves. They were themselves deceived. And then deceptive hearts because that's what they also taught to others. Right? So Jesus goes on to say this. He sees their true condition and they're lovers of money. And not only are they lovers of money, but they're trusting in themselves and their own works for salvation. And though men can't see it, who sees it? God. They should have realized by the law because they were keepers of the law, right? They were ones who studied the law. They were the ones who loved the law. Romans 3 says this, and this is what they should have realized. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's what they should have realized. And yet they didn't. They thought that they would be justified before God for salvation, and they justified themselves in their love for money. Right? And so they should know through the law that they can't justify themselves before God. And they should be aware of their sin. Turn to Christ and be saved. So God is aware of their rejection of him. God is aware of their secret love for money. And no matter how much they justify themselves before man, in the end, it doesn't matter. Because God sees their hearts.
They didn't know the truth, and they deceived others. God, one of the attributes of God is his omniscience. You know what that means? All-knowing. He knows everything. And so, what man saw was very different from what God saw. God saw their hearts, and he knew the condition of their hearts. Matthew 23 describes it like this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Here's how Jesus, this is what Jesus says. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 1 Samuel 16 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? Heart. And because their hearts were corrupt, number five, all their religious acts were an abomination before God. Number five, all their religious acts were an abomination before God. He says, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of who? In the sight of who? God. The Pharisees were lovers of money. They justified themselves salvifically. They prided themselves on their righteousness and goodness. They were exalting themselves before men. God saw their hearts, and therefore, all their religious works that were exalted by men were abominations to God. Think about this. This is what Jesus is saying here, okay? God and man saw the same exact things. And man exalted their religious works, and God saw them as an abomination. Isn't that crazy? They saw the same thing. They thought that they, they, they could trick man, trick man, but they couldn't trick God. We must understand that the Pharisees, they not only justify themselves salvifically, but they justify themselves with money, and including all of this, God sees their heart and what is exalted among men. They claim to be right with God. They claim to be right because of their good works. Their religious works claim to show that they had favor with God, they were saved, and that they could con continue to serve God in money. Yet their hearts expose their corrupt motives, and Jesus says that God sees your hearts. Now, here's what I want to tell you. Do you know that not only the Pharisees' religious works are an abomination to God, but all sinners' religious works are an abomination to God, right? The Bible says that even our best works fall short of God's glory. You know that? So what that means is we understand that's why we need Christ. We understand that we, we can't earn salvation through our, our works. You think of even your best work is tainted by sin. But that's why Jesus came to pay for our sin. The, issue, the main issue of the Pharisees is that they rejected God's Christ. They rejected salvation through Christ. Even their good works were an abomination. Of course, all of these evil works that we're seeing, all of it is evil, but these just uh, grotesque works are, are, of course, evil. But all works are an abomination before, all even good works are an abomination before God. You can't get to heaven by your good works, Right? And yet this is how the Pharisees lived and their issue was that they refused to see their sinful condition, refused to believe in God's Christ, refused to repent and trust in God's Christ for salvation. That's the issue here. So we know that no good works could get us into heaven, no works alone at all. Yet this is how the Pharisees lived. So the Greek word that's used here is detestable. It, it means that it, it refers to something that stinks. So what the man saw and exalted, God saw and it stinks. It smells. Right? It's disgusting. It's revolting. And this is their righteous, religious works before God. That man is praising, yet God is refusing and they refused to trust in God's Christ to be saved. So they were lovers of money. They were opposed to the truth. They justified themselves. They had deceived and deceptive hearts. Their religious acts were abomination 
Number six, more than anything else, they rejected the true gospel. Verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Now, this might seem confusing to you at this point to the end, but I promise you it's, it's pretty clear. And I'm just going to explain it to you. So we got three of these points left, six, seven, and eight. And all these are really important that you listen to before we're finished. Verse 16, what Jesus is speaking about is that they're rejectors, listen, of the gospel. They've rejected Christ. He says the law and the prophets. Look at it, verse 16, the law and the prophets. I'm just repeating what's there. This refers to the whole Old Testament. The law and the prophets. The first five books of the Old Testament, which is the law, Moses' writings, the Pentateuch, meaning five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and? All right. It referred to all the Old Testament and the prophets, the law and the prophets. Jesus mentioned it a lot of times, Luke 24. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in them, uh, to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, meaning Jesus showed the whole Old Testament how it pointed to him. Luke 24 says this, and he said to them, these are my words that I've spoken to while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, and then here he adds also the Psalms, must be fulfilled. Matthew 5, 17 says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew 22 says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the what? So, listen, Jesus is speaking of the whole Old Testament, and here's what he's saying. This period of the Old Testament ended with the ministry of who? John the Baptist. The law and the prophets were until who? Okay, that's pretty clear, right? So what is he saying here? He's saying that the period of the Old Testament doesn't end with Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament. It continues to operate until John the Baptist's announcement of the kingdom of God. John is considered to be the true last Old Testament prophet. And yet, you want to know what's very unique? John the Baptist is also the very first New Testament prophet. He is the one who announced the entrance into the kingdom through repentance. You get this? So John, the Old Testament was in effect the Old Covenant until who? John the Baptist, who was the last Old Testament prophet, and one of his unique roles is he's also the first New Testament prophet, right? Meaning this, let's just transition here. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. John the Baptist acts as a bridge between two periods. He has an incredibly unique role, right? This is how the Old, old Covenant is transferred into the New Covenant, the ministry of John the Baptist. He bridges the two. And this is a special period in a special unique role. This is why Jesus says this. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there, is no, there has arisen no one greater than who? John the Baptist, because of his unique role. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the, king, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Look at this. You ready? For all the prophets in the law prophesied until who? John. John the Baptist has this unique role. Now listen, John witnessed then, as he transfer, transferred out of the Old Covenant into the New, he witnessed then and proclaimed the entrance of Jesus Christ. And you know when the, the New Covenant, the new, uh, the new Testament, and John's role of transferring the baton comes to its culmination, and now we're headed off with the gospel, is at the Lord Jesus' baptism. That's where the transition is complete. The new covenant, it culminates. Uh, the, the old covenant, it, it culminates in that moment when John's transition was complete at this point. And here's when uh, John says this. Look at this. You ready? You yourselves bear witness that I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So here comes John, the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The old covenant to the new covenant. He's not the Christ. He's the transition one right? The one who has the bride as the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear, hears him, which he's saying, that's me. I'm just the friend. I rejoice greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Here comes Jesus. 
He says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. That's just pretty clear. John's saying, here's my joy that I get to usher in, the bridegroom who is the Christ. This is the new covenant. My joy is now complete. My time is over, which is when he says, I must, he must increase and I must what? I mean, people take that verse out of context to talk about something other than what it means. John is literally saying at this point, I'm going away, and guess who's coming in? This is the transition. And so then Jesus goes on in our passage to say this, look, the law and the prophets were until John, since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. That since that time or since then, listen, you know what that means? It's a similar phrase to what we've seen over and over again in the book of Luke. It's a key transition. Since that time, since that time, right? It's a transition. It's a turning point. It says this, the kingdom of God is preached. Since that time, the gospel of Christ has been the main focus. Jesus has been the central focus. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. He's the promised one. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's God's Christ. He's the coming king. He's the good news. He's the entrance into the kingdom. That's what was preached. And we see this transition. Look, Matthew 3, this is what John the Baptist said. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist, when Jesus was coming and he's ready to pass the baton, it says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then Jesus comes in and he begins his ministry and he begins with the same message. From that time forward, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so do you understand this transition? This is the transition. And then he says this, and everyone forces his way into it. You know what that means? You can go back to John or Luke chapter 14 where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is hard to get into. The way is narrow. Many desire to come into it, but are not what? Remember what it said? They're not able. It's too hard. You know what it's going to take? It's going to take repentance. It's going to take realizing your sinful condition. It's going to take accepting Jesus' terms. It's going to take living for him and dying to yourself. Sinful men, they force their way into it. They say, I'm turning from my sin. I'm believing in Jesus. I'm running from him, for, for him. I'm going to be saved. Right? This is what it means. And what Jesus is implying here is this. You are not doing that, Pharisees. That's what you're not doing. From the days until John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been preached, and man uh, and everyone forces his way into it. You are not doing that. You refuse to see your sin. You refuse to repent of your sin. You refer, refuse to die to yourself and come under the lordship of the, of, of the Christ, right? And, uh, and that's what Jesus is saying here. There's, as you read the commentators about this, there's, there's a little bit of ambiguity meaning this. They ask, is Jesus showing the example of the disciples who have done this? Is he showing the, is he indicting just the Pharisees who are refusing to do this? Or is he even talking about the way the words are used, how pe people are urged into the kingdom? Not they're um, deciding to force their way in, but someone forcing them in. Well, I think all three are relevant here. Meaning this, that the disciples are the ones who have forced their way in by repenting and by trusting in Christ. The Pharisees have refused to force their way in by repenting and trusting in Christ. And Jesus has been trying to force them in, them all in, through saying there is no other way than repentance and faith in me. And all three show us the point that the Pharisees are guilty here of rejecting the gospel. Number seven, we're right on time. They're blind also to the guidance and the promise of the law. Now, I'm just going to mention this. Verse 17, he goes on to say, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. What Jesus is saying here is you're not only rejecters of the gospel, you're also rejecters of the law that you claim to hold so tightly to. What, does the, what did the law do? Listen, there's a few things. Just listen. The law was a guide. It was a guide. It showed us how to follow God. It showed them how to obey God's commands. You understand? The law was a guide. 
There was bumpers on a lane to show them how they would stay on the straight and narrow path towards God. The law was also a mirror. The law was meant to show you your sinful condition. And by the way, just a side note, you say, well, how do we as Christians deal with the Old Testament? Well, that's what it is. Except now you're empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey God's law, right? Which the Old Testament um, is still, what Jesus is saying is the Old Testament is not uh, void, it's fulfilled. And we treat it as a guide, we treat it as our, uh, to obey, we treat it as a mirror to see our own sinfulness. And so the idea here is that this exposes man's sin, their need for salvation. It keeps one right. It keeps one straight on the narrow path. It's to be obeyed if one is to follow God. And they have rejected God's law by their sin. They're lovers of money. They're hypocrites. They're proud. They've denied God's law. They've added to God's law. They've twisted God's law. So Jesus is, this is like Jesus is just piling it on. Not only are you rejecters of the gospel, but in case you think, well, we've kept God's law, you're also disobedient to God's law. You understand? They don't obey the law that they claim to know and love. But the law was not only, listen, the law was not only a guide, it was also a promise. It didn't only serve as a mirror, it served as binoculars. It was to point to who was coming, which is who? Christ. They've not only rejected the law as a guide to be obeyed, rules to be obeyed, they've not only twisted the law of God to fit their own desires, but they've also rejected of the, the promised one who is to come. They were saying they were waiting for the Messiah, yet he arrives and they don't even recognize the fact that he's right in front of them. The law is not over and done. The law is fulfilled. So Jesus says this, heaven and earth shall pass away, and it's easier for that to happen. Look at Psalm 102. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will what? Remain. They'll wear out like a garment. You'll change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than the smallest detail of the law to fail, is what Jesus is saying. Meaning this, not even what is equivalent to a Hebrew apostrophe will fail. Not even a stroke. Not even what separates like an English letter, a lowercase l from a, an uppercase l. That just one line. Not even one line will fail of the word of God. Right? This speaks of so many things that I, I wish I had time, but I'm, I'll pass over. It speaks of, listen, it speaks of the inspiration of the Old Testament. Jesus is speaking of the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is speaking of how they are to abide by the law. And yet, listen, the Pharisees have rejected God's law in addition to the gospel of Christ. They have uh, they've not seen the promise fulfilled in Christ. They have not obeyed the law. And, um, and although they portrayed outward devotion to the law, they've disobeyed it. So, number eight then, we move to an example of how they've done this. Ready? Finish with this. Three minutes. They've moved to an example. We move to an example of how they've disobeyed God's law. Number eight. They twist the law of God to facilitate their own desires. Verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. At first, this may feel disconnected and very randomly placed. But let me tell you, it's pretty straightforward. This is not to be a place taken by itself to understand Jesus' full command on divorce and remarriage. Many people turn to this passage and say, see, it's, pretty stated, it's stated pretty clearly. This is what he says. But the statement, that's an error in what, the way you read the Bible. The, the statement can't be isolated, uh, an isolated teaching on divorce and remarriage because we see Jesus and Paul command in other places other aspects of divorce and remarriage. Jesus permits this um, in the case of persistent, unrepentant, hard-hearted adultery, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Mark 10. Paul permits this in the case of an unbelieving spouse continuing to refuse to live with a believing spouse. Paul lays it out in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. And then, of course, there's a situation of death, which isn't really divorce. And as a side note, because we don't have time for it right now, you might ask, what about all the in-between issues, Right? Well, I think if you deal with this issue of divorce 
through the proper channels, which is church discipline, and you deal with this rightly, and you deal with this through the leadership of the church, I think you'll find is that these two categories pretty much cover everything. Because if you separate a spouse for something, uh, a spouse for something that's going on in the home, like abuse, right, and you require that both come under God's way to do this right before you will ever put them back together and put anybody in an unsafe situation, at some point either someone's going to have to come under the law of God or someone's going to refuse to live with that person in the way that God commands. See what I'm saying? And so what we understand is that God is, Jesus really knows what he's talking about here when he comes to the rules for this situation. And so just to say, this isn't the... um, This isn't to be taken isolated. Jesus is not switching gears here and now speaking on the topic of divorce and remarriage as his uh, his, uh, full teaching on the subject. The point here is that Jesus is still indicting the Pharisees for the way that they treat the law. You understand? Now, here's what's happening. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, I'm just going to read the beginning. This is what Jesus is referring to. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and, I mean, you just go on, right? Now listen, in the beginning of this, what's happening is God is setting parameters on divorce and remarriage. Why? Not because he desires it, but because it's happening. And in Deuteronomy 24, God is setting these parameters so this sin isn't just running rampant. He's assigning a certificate of divorce. He's giving parameters about it. And what the Pharisees are doing is they're taking what God designed to be regulations. And now they're using them for an excuse to actually commit the sin that God is trying to regulate. You understand? Because what they would do then is they took Deuteronomy chapter 24 in the beginning and they twisted it for themselves to permit divorce for themselves for anything about their wife that they didn't like. So examples included historically, they took this to mean that the Pharisee could divorce his wife if she wasn't pretty enough, if she didn't like the meals she cooked, if he didn't like the meals she cooked, women, very cook good meals, (laughs) if if, uh, she didn't give her husband a son. And so what Jesus is implying here, and then we'll, we'll finish, is Jesus is showing them how they twist the scriptures, how they haven't even kept to the scriptures, and then he gives this prime example. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a divorced woman from her husband, uh, a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. What's assumed here, what the, pre, what, the, what the presumption is here, what's implied here is under unbiblical grounds, is that they're doing this with no biblical grounds to do it, and he's indicting them. That's just presumed here. And he's saying, you guys are adulterers. You guys haven't kept God's law. You guys have twisted God's law to fit your own desires. That's the point. It's not an isolated teaching on the subject. So in conclusion, with all these errors, Jesus is exposing outwardly the religious leaders. He's exposing that though they believe they're right with God, they are not. They have rejected God's word. They have rejected the gospel. They are guilty of sin. They have rejected of God's Christ. And they twist the scriptures to fit their own desires. And their religion, their wealth, their platform in this life will not save them. And Jesus is making that known. Let's pray. Father, we come and we thank you for your word, which clarifies to us what is true of false teachers what is true about these Pharisees, what is true about these men that Jesus is indicting. God, help us not only to not be guilty of this error ourselves, but help us also to exploit and expose those who commit this same error. As you tell us in in your word, that teachers of the word are not only teach sound doctrine, but to refute those who contradict it. And that's what you're doing here, Jesus. You are refuting those who are contradicting sound doctrine. And we thank you for your example. And God, we pray that we ourselves, again, would not fall under the same error of the Pharisees. We would not only exploit those who teach it, but that we ourselves 
would respond to your teaching, not in a way that refuses it or scoffs at it or ridicules it, but in a way that humbly accepts your teaching and repents from our sin and come under, comes under the authority of your teaching. And I pray that you'd help us by your spirit to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.